The cancer journey is unique for everyone. It's time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to Unspoken Cancer Truths with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to Episode 55 of Unspoken Cancer Truths. I'm your host, Jen Cochran. Over the years, I've talked with guests about the long-term survivorship challenges of surviving cancer diagnosed in their late teens, and talked with a sibling who shared about what it was like to have many family members face cancer over the years, starting with a sister when they were both very young. Today's the first time we're talking about the challenges of childhood cancer. I'm so happy to introduce my guest, Sharon Baumgarten. Sharon lives by the words of Sophocles, look and you will find it. What is unsought will go undetected. It is her sincere hope that others in difficult situations will find comfort and support in her experiences as the mother of a child whose journey through treatment for leukemia was fraught with many challenges. Yet, that time has only created a positive and rewarding impact upon her life and the life of her family. I know her family has had a positive impact on my cancer journey as well. Without further ado, let's dive in. Welcome, Sharon. I'm so happy to have you here talking about your family's story today. I've known you for, oh my gosh, more than 15 years, I think. I think so. Yes. Yes. So I'm I'm so happy to have you sharing your story. And it's such an inspirational story as well. So I'm going to let you go ahead and just jump in. Oh, well, my story begins. On February the 17th, at four o'clock in the afternoon, our son, my husband and I had a nine-year-old, who was almost 10, and a 13-year-old daughter. Um, he had been sick for a while, or, well, well, we weren't quite sure how sick he was. We would find out at four o'clock that afternoon. Um, Brian had taken him to the doctors because he wasn't feeling well. Every now and then he was running a fever and every now and then he was just not wanting to get up. He was kind of lethargic. Um, so in the wisdom of the 13-year-old, he said, well, you should take him to the doctor. He probably has the flu. Okay, okay. I'm a teacher. I'm going to go to work. Your dad has his own business. So can you take him? So Brian did. Um, we, uh, Got the phone call at two o'clock in the afternoon that we needed to be in the doctor's office at four o'clock uh, just to parent. And I thought, hmm, that's kind of weird. Okay. So I left school a little early and met my husband at the doctor's office, the pediatrician's office. Um, our pediatricians uh, looked at us and said, um, I think your son has leukemia. And I mean, he needs to go to the hospital and he needs to be there like now. Um, and I can remember distinctly sitting there in the doctor's office, uh, talking with her about it, sitting on the bench like the children sit on the bench. And I thought, huh. And my husband would say, you know, well, what about, you know, she was talking about Fairfax and he was like, well, what about children's? And I could see the expression on her face. And I looked at him and I said, no, Dr. Andrews is saying Fairfax, that's, that's, I think that's where we're going to start to go. So we left the doctor's office numb, 
and began to think on the four minute drive home, how are we going to do this? Oh, now I might begin to cry. Um, I knew that I didn't have any time to cry and began to grieve what was happening to us in such a whirlwind pattern. Um, I had a 13 year old who needed to be taken care of. I knew my son was going to be in the hospital. My husband was going with me to, to take him. And I went to a neighbor's house and I broke down for about maybe two minutes. That's all I could allow myself time to do. Um, she took care of Sarah until my mom could get up. Of course, I couldn't get my brother on the phone because I couldn't get my mother on the phone. And uh, they lived in Richmond. And finally, when someone answered, you know, I didn't have much time to explain other than, Mom, you've got to get up here because David's really, really sick. Um, by six o'clock, we were admitted into Fairfax Hospital. Well, I should say David was. We were, they knew we were coming, so we didn't have to go through emergency room. Uh, we went right up to the floor and they admitted us right in from the pediatric oncology unit. That was the Thursday afternoon at six o'clock. Uh, the doctor showed up. We spoke with her about eight o'clock that night. She wanted to run some tests before uh, she had any definitive information to give us. So that went on for a couple of hours and, and Brian finally had to go home because we had a 13 year old that needed some care as well. So we hadn't had much time to be able to explain to her what was going on either. Um, David was a sick little boy on that Thursday afternoon, but by Thursday night, he was a really, really sick little boy. Um, it was about 10, 10.30 at night and the doctor came back and she said she thought he had acute lymphocytic leukemia. So we were like, okay, what does that mean? She says, well, I got some more tests that are running. They won't be back until tomorrow, Friday. So, okay, well, so it's a wait and see thing kind of game. I said, well, what if it is? She says, well, if it is ALL, then that's treatable. Um, so we kind of just held on listening to what she had to say that night being in the hospital with him was eerily, eerily quiet until two o'clock in the morning when I heard Dr. Red is in the building. Now I'm a teacher and I was thinking, oh my gosh, that is code for a fire drill. <laughs> teacher thinks fire drill you got to leave I walked out and my son is really really sick in the bed and I looked at one of the nurses going by and I said please tell me that you're not evacuating him for fire drill she says oh no 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 calm down <laughs> okay deep breath <gasps> and back and I go looking back that was kind of funny experience <laughs> I can laugh about it now thinking of course they're not going to evacuate all the sick people from a hospital for a fire drill so that's anyway. So Brian comes back to the hospital on Friday. We're going through more tests. Sarah has tried to go to school. My mom is there. And I honestly don't know whether Sarah stayed in school all day that day or not. Um, the next day, February the 19th, 
It was Saturday. My birthday. Yes. I was 43 years old that day. Um, and it was around noon. And the pediatrician showed up to come and visit and see how David was doing. Thank God she did, because shortly after she arrived, the oncologist arrived with the information about all the tests she had done for those two days and sat us down. And the pediatrician said, can I go? I went, oh, yeah, please. I can see in that little conference room sitting on a couch the oncologist and the pediatrician talking to each other, Brian and I sitting there just looking and kind of like watching a volleyball back and forth that, you know, and the pediatrician asked the questions I didn't know to ask. And I thought, thank you God for being here because I don't know what to say. They had determined that he did have acute lymphosystemic leukemia, ALL, B-type, but his white blood count was so high, he was considered an at-risk child because he was almost 10 years old. My husband kept saying, but he's nine. And the oncologist said, no, no, he's 10. He's 30 days away from being 10. He's 10. So we had a child who had a blood cancer, high risk, and was really, really sick. I can remember the oncologist looking at me and saying, so what do you want to do? And Brian and I looked at each other going, what do you mean? What do we want to do? And, and I think I even said that. What do you mean? What do we want to do? And she said, well, you know, we can talk about treatment or not talk about treatment. And about that time, the pediatrician jumped in and said, well, what would treatment look like? I'm like, okay, thank you. Because, oh, um, wow. <laughs> I know. It's stunning, I, isn't it? I don't uh, I don't <laughs> often jump in, but knowing obviously I know how how the story goes. So yeah. uh, that wow. Yeah. Now there's been a lot that has happened in the intervening years and blood cancer yeah. especially, but oh my goodness. Yeah. So I looked at her and I just said, show us where to sign that you're gonna treat him. You're the doctor. You make him well. We're the parents. We're going to take care of all of that stuff. But you, the doctor, you make him well. Um, so we did. We were handed a 22-page booklet with the pediatric oncology protocol that they were putting him on. They had already started him on the pre-chemo stuff, which I really didn't understand at the time. Um, so it's like, okay, we can do this. And reading through it over and over and over again, it was important to note that there are 11 different drugs that he was going to have over a three-year period of time. Sometimes he would have multiple drugs on the same day. But for about the first year and a half, he had drugs every day. He was in the oncology office every day. But I digress. Let me go back a little bit. Um, we, he was discharged 10 days after being admitted. The nurses were surprised. Oh, no, no, you're going to be here for at least two to three weeks. And you're thinking, oh, no, no, we're not. Really, we're getting out of here. When we got out of here, they said, oh, we'll see you back. And I'm thinking, oh, no, no, you won't. No, 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 no. We're going to go home. He's going to get treated. He's going to be good. 
The day we were leaving, the doctor came in and I, as a teacher, had my planner out. And I, she says, okay, you'll have, you know, a couple of, you know, routine appointments, you know, appointments that you got to make, da, 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 da. I said, okay, great. So I'm ready. And she looked at me and she says, mm, we'll make the first one. And then after that, you'll then make the second one. I said, but you just told me that I have multiple appointments that I need to make. She says, yeah, we make them one at a time. Well, that was really challenging for a teacher who could tell you a year in advance what she was going to be doing. I'm like, okay. So off we go. And the next day I had to take him to the oncology office. Here I've got a 10-year-old little boy who now is not going to be in school for it looks like at least a year and a half, if not longer. Um, and we're going to an oncology office. And I had this vision in my head of adult oncology because my father had had cancer and had died six years prior. And I had been to the adult oncology office with him. And I just was not knowing. I just couldn't see this with a child. We walked in the door. Children were running up and down the hall, laughing. IV poles going with them. Moms with their coffees, collecting in corners, talking and giggling. And I just went, oh, my God, it's a normal place as normal as it can be for these children who have cancer. David thrived there because they had a lady who was the play lady and made sure that the children had arts and crafts to do, birthdays were celebrated, all the milestones that children should have had when they were well was happening there within that oncology office. Um, I was lucky in the sense that I met Nancy Keene, who wrote Childhood Leukemia and a follow-up book, uh, which I participated in, in writing um, with providing her some vignettes with uh, surviving childhood cancer. She was my sounding board for what was happening. And somehow she knew when I needed help and would call me. And I'd be going, oh my God, I'm so glad, you know, we're facing this kind of struggle with David. Um, or the acceptance of medicines or things that were going on. So I was trying to take care of everybody else. And I was glad to have at least one person who was looking out for me um, in the sense of supporting me where I didn't know what I was doing. The social worker had been in. She had talked to us about um, what it was going to look like for David over the years. And I'm glad she did. Uh, she gave us a great notebook, which I still have to this day with all my notes in it um, on what his protocol was and every drug he had, conversations with the doctors every day. Luckily, Brian uh, had just started a business, so he could come over and be at the doctor's office for those important conversations. We didn't have to worry about leave of absence or taking. I took leave of absence for a year and a half, but he didn't. Um, we could still have that. Uh, there was the uh, Leukemia Lymphoma Society who we got in touch with, and there was a Marine from church who heard about David and who came over and would call, and he would come over and he would play video games with David. He'd talk with David, and he ran in the Marine Corps Marathon that October in honor of David. We had a great relationship with him. If, if Dan hadn't been there to make some normalcy, I don't know what my day would have looked like sometimes. Um, 
David became part of that uh, honored teammate program with Latino Lymphoma Society. That gave him connections and some grounding for what he, when we came home from the hospital after that first 10 days, he said to me, Mom, God gave me this. I gulped. I thought, okay, listen. And I said, well, I'm not sure that God gave it to you, David. He said, no, 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 Mom, listen to me. God gave me this so that I can help others. And I said, you're right. God gave you the strength to help others through what you're going to go through. We went through three years with some ups and downs, um, some reactions to drugs that didn't fit him. With him talking to doctors, a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, telling a doctor who had done a clinic trials at Mayo Clinic that she needed to do the research better because she should know when he's going to be allergic to a drug and what drugs he should not be allergic to. It was hilarious watching this conversation with a, an adult doctor who had been at Chicago Children's Mayo Clinic. And he and a 14-year-old boy are having this conversation that, you know what, there really should be something that's done. We, we, you know, we know you can do it. So, um, The doctors involved him in conversations that weren't usually what 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds would be involved in. Um, we, lit, we took our cue from what David was going through. We had neighbors who were not sure what to do in the sense of David would go down and play just like all the other boys. He fell out of an apple tree of a neighbor's house. And that child came running up and said, David's lying on the ground. He can't move. <laughs> and I went down and my neighbor is looking and going, we, he, he, and I said, we called the ambulance. I said, that's okay. I looked at David and I said, so what's the matter? He says, I don't feel anything from the waist down. I said, oh, okay. Just lay there. Ambulance will be here in a minute. No worries. <laughs> She's looking at me going, what? He'll be fine. He'll be fine. Um, those little kind of vignettes, children coming in the neighborhood who David hadn't been in school, you know, and all of a sudden girls are showing up with plates of cookies. Like, who are you? <laughs> I said, Do you know who they are? No, no. I said, okay. <laughs> yeah. Children kept coming to play and we didn't stop them from coming in the house. We didn't say, well, we did tell them to go wash their hands, <laughs> but David wouldn't mask. They wouldn't mask. I just, you know, if they were sick, they didn't come in. But we had determined as a family, we needed to, for things to be as normal as they could be. And David needed a normal childhood. Sarah did too. A year and a half later, that was fifth grade for him when he was first diagnosed. Well, he didn't get back into school in sixth grade in the middle school. Seventh grade, he should have been able to go back a little bit. School wasn't so understanding of David's needs, even though they told me, oh, we've, we've done this before. And I said, you've done it before, I know, but you haven't done it before with my child. And you need to know about my child. Luckily for me, when David was diagnosed, the elementary principal came to the hospital and said, here's some information about special education services. Um, we had had him tested. He hadn't qualified. Uh, she said, you need to appeal, and this is what you need to say on it. I went, okay. 
she had raised uh, someone else's child who had leukemia. So she knew the road I was going to go down before I even did. So luckily, we had that umbrella to protect David from some things that were being said about him not completing seventh grade and having to repeat seventh grade, which I was like, not going to happen. Um, so by the time eighth grade came around, uh, it was a better experience and relationship with the new elementary middle school um, in eighth grade than the seventh grade had been. Um, but David was still having trouble getting back into school. And that's where I called Nancy Keen again and, and talked with her um, about school reentry and reentry programs. And what does that look like? And I called um, the King Lymphoma Society about school reentry and what does it look like? And um, David had seen a friend's husband who was a child psychologist uh, in the hospital who had talked to me because David had been in 30 days of isolation following our dismissal. Um, and, you know, so I knew then that he needed to see someone else because he was struggling with going back in. It's scary. It's scary for children. Um, it it's scary for all cancer survivors. That's one of the common psychosocial things that comes up that, mm -hmm. that re-entry to, you know, quote unquote, normal life. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's, it's across the board and it's really a struggle that's not being addressed for survivors. Even the, even the adults. Yeah. Yeah. High school, um, you know, he was, after three years, he was out of chemotherapy. High school was a better experience. Um, many of the teachers knew us because they'd had Sarah. Uh, the assistant principal worked with us. You know, we only had one bump in the road there. Um, but that umbrella of having him in special ed was my saving grace um, because he, he did graduate on time. He went to college. He got out of college. He uh, was healthy. He did his own triathlon. He did his own century bike ride. He had had carved out for him in his world who he was going to be and how he was going to let this experience affect him, which allowed me to see how it was going to reshape our family, which I have to say it hasn't, it has made us a very close-knit family in the way of, of understanding and listening um, to each other and recognizing that things are, you know, sometimes going to be okay and sometimes they're not going to be okay. Um, I didn't realize until Sarah, our daughter, was in college um, that freshman year and she was doing a, a writing about how it really affected her. And she had sent me a composition she had written for me to revise and edit, which David then took that information when he became um, a participant in the patient services for LLS on the impact on siblings. Yes. So, you know, cancer impacts the patient, it impacts the parents, and it impacts the siblings and, and those around you. And as well as it impacted my mom, who had 
gone through it with my dad six years prior. Um, so, but when I think about and I think backwards, um, there's a quote that Ralph Waldo Emerson said, and it's the reward of a thing well done is to have done it. Now, I don't know whether we did it well, but I think we did it okay in, in guiding him and being there with him. There's so many stories that we still have and laugh on today about what David said to people, what people had said to him, how he reacted, things from school, you know, that weren't right and things that I took forward as a principal and said, this is how it's going to be in my school because this is better for children. Um, so I, I think in Emerson's words that, you know, we did it and we did it okay. And I'm, I don't regret any of those moments that we did because it brought something out in David and, and a philanthropy type of, of way of him being coming and involved in, in an organization. And he uh, dragged me along with him <laughs> in that sense. You know, you watch you watch me try to run down the road. He did. He did bring you along with him. And actually, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to learn more about that because that is a fantastic story as well. So stay with us. We'll be right back. I hope you're enjoying Unspoken Cancer Truths. I help people to get moving again. And sometimes you just need to switch up the approach or find a new challenge especially when thinking about starting back after treatment or an illness. One of my goals is to help you flip the idea of exercise as something that's hard, awful, or daunting, and make it something fun, maybe even a little social, safely, of course. The important thing is that you wanna get started and you're happy to show up for yourself And then you want to stay in the game because it feels good to move and you had fun doing it. Ready to reimagine exercise? You can email me at jennifer at fitnessdesignsolutions.com or schedule a coffee chat with me through the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning. Now back to the show. Welcome back. I'm here with Sharon, and we are talking about her family's journey with her son's ALL. And it's always just so reinforcing to me whenever I hear people's stories and see all the ways in which the universe just shows up to help us the pediatrician coming into the hospital for a visit just as the oncologist arrived and the principal being able to come in and having had that experience and being able to share with another educator how to navigate the system during such a challenging time to have those people come in is just so valuable and then Nancy Keene and when we were talking during the break, you mentioned all the people from church who showed up and um, with meals, and that's amazing. And then the lady at the Petco who told you that even though you were resisting getting the dog, you already, the dog had already chosen to go home with David. 
So <laughs> all of those, uh, it's just amazing to me how the universe always kind of conspires to help us in ways that we didn't know we needed. That really piece of shoring up your, your, you know, you don't know what you need until you really don't know what you need. Yes. But people around you sometimes can see it better than you. Um, you know, for three years, I didn't cook a meal because church was always there. Um, and looking back, while sometimes it might have been, you know, oh, my God, how much more food can we have? Looking back, it was like, oh, my God, how grateful I was that all day long at the pediatrician at the oncologist's office, showing up at home at five o'clock that there was a hot meal there for my family and me not having to do it. You know, the dog, rascal, the dog <laughs> uh, was 10 years, such a, a major part of our life from that day where we adopted her, where, you know, David saw her, he, he wanted a dog. He had told the social worker he had wanted a dog for Make-A-Wish and we're going, no, we're going to do something else for Make-A-Wish, like go to Hawaii <laughs> as a family and, and come together. And we'll take care of the dog. But I really didn't want a dog at the time because I knew we were so, had so much on our plate already. But when we sat outside during that dog adoption and, and Rascal was sitting in his lap for 30 minutes and people kept coming up and that the uh, you know, handler kept saying, no, nope, no, nope. mom's going to get the dog. She just doesn't know it yet. And after 30 minutes, someone else had come up. And, and when that person walked away, she looked at me and she said, he needs her. In retrospect, yes, he needed her. And so did we. Um, she was the, became the focus of something to care for that brought David out of his room. He had to come downstairs to play with her to take her out for a walk. Okay, wait a minute. He never took her for a walk. <laughs> but, you know, um, she was his companion. Um, and she was mine. Uh, because I had to walk her. It got me out in the neighborhood walking. Uh, it got me out and doing things that, you know, outside of the house that needed to be done. Um, Sarah, to play with the dog, Rascal, so that she, as a puppy, didn't invite David. She stepped in, you know, and, and Brian just absolutely adores all dogs. And uh, so, yeah, the dog, <laughs> Rascal, um, still miss her after all this time. She's been gone for uh, 11, 12 years. Wow. Yeah. So. So people are important. It's important. You know, I know the social worker had told me you need to let people help you. And I'm thinking, I, I got this on my own. Um, but the social worker was very much right that, you know, people came into my life at times when I needed help and really didn't know I needed it. They saw it. And I'm glad they did um, because it helped me make decisions along the way. It helped the family along the way. Um, and I guess it really all started with that one Marine who came to our house that very first month, Dan, uh, you know, he saw what was needed. Um, and he was there for the first year, almost every week. He had no children, <laughs> but he sure did enjoy coming over playing video games and hanging out with David. Um, you know, so yeah, people, you know, you need to let people help you. 
you know, whether you ask for it or not, you, you, you know, when someone offers, you know, I, I did accept that. Um, sometimes I sought out help, but most of the time it just people fell into my path that when I needed it and I didn't really know I needed it. I think that's such an important aspect of, of help as well. It's, it's not necessarily the asking, but the openness to receive the help. Cause I do think that it's so common that we just don't know we're overwhelmed. We're in this place of so many things start happening at once. Your life gets turned upside down and people say, what can I do? I have no idea. I have no idea what you can do. (laughs) What do you got in mind? (laughs) Right. Like, I don't know. I had one, I had one friend that because I'm celiac, people did not want to cook for me. (laughs) And I had one friend that would call me like on Sunday and say, okay, this is what I'm making. These are the ingredients. Can you eat this? I'm coming over in an hour. (laughs) Oh, you will eat this food that I'm bringing. (laughs) (laughs) And it ended up that it was always the perfect thing that I needed in that moment. And I couldn't have I couldn't have said I need this kind of food because I didn't even know until it arrived at my door. It nurtures our body as well as our soul. Yes. You know, human beings are people who want to be cared for and care for others and be connected. So it's, yeah. Yes. And so it's funny because you said that you didn't really cook any meals for three years, but that's not entirely true because a mutual friend of ours reminded me of a story this morning that has always stood out in her mind that I had not heard before about the middle of the night pancakes and French toast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, moms do what moms need to do when uh, David was going to have a spinal tap or some procedure the next day when you, you know, you can't eat after a certain amount of time because of the anesthesia, uh, he would know, you know, okay, it's going to be at eight o'clock. So at two o'clock, you can't have anything to eat after that. So mom, what time are pancakes showing up? So I would get up at one o'clock in the morning and I'd go down and I'd make pancakes or French toast. And I would take it up to him so that he wouldn't be hungry the next morning. Uh, and uh, so he would have his pancakes in bed. <laughs> for his French toast in bed. Um, and the minute he came out of anesthesia, he wanted something else to eat as well. But, um, but yeah, you know, those midnight kitchen runs, I did cook and they were fun. They, they were kind of that laughing moment where, you know, you know, okay, wake up, it's time for your pancakes. And, you know, a few minutes of levity, uh, you know, brevity uh, at night means a lot when you're then getting ready to get up in the morning and fight the traffic to go into Fairfax and, you know, be put under and, and have a spinal tap and, you know, so yeah, pancakes. <laughs> that's that's fantastic. That, that's funny that she remembers that. I think that's hilarious. Yeah. I, I was like, what? I don't know. I have to ask about this. I'm glad that's the one thing she remembers. <laughs> that, that was funny. I really have so appreciated all of the volunteerism and all the things that David has done with LLS over the years. You mentioned his century rides and his triathlons and, and he, he 
pulled you into a half marathon a while back. He did, you know, as he became on a teammate and then he became involved in team and training as a participant himself, raising money for Leukemia Lymphoma Society. Parents go where children go. So I would have to drive him to these things. And, you know, the team would be around and they're going, well, when are you going to do something? And when are you? And I'm going, yeah, no, it doesn't happen. I don't run. I don't do, I don't bike. I don't do. And, you know, he's gotten taller than me now and he patted me on the head one time and he said, don't worry. She's going to do the Nike women's half marathon. And I went, oh yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll do that. Thinking it's in San Francisco. I don't fly. I'm good. <laughs> I can say I'm going to do that. I got a phone call in 2012. Mom, guess what? He's part of the patient services for uh, Leukemia Lymphoma Society. They're doing it in DC. So they're doing what in DC? They do a lot of things in DC. What are you talking about? They're doing the Nike Women's Half Marathon in DC. I went, oh, oh, now I'm going to have to do it. I'm 55 years old. I was a dancer. I didn't run. I didn't run in gym class. I don't run around the block. I don't know. I mean, okay, fine. I might've run to the refrigerator for a drink. But I don't know. <laughs> so I said, fine, I will do it. I uh, began training and I had a very good neighbor who also helped me train and started me with some Pilates and some yogas and uh, thank you Jennifer for that because some of your guidance along the way was very poignant in my ears and in back of my head as I would begin to run around the neighborhood and, and begin to do this. I did do it on yes, March April, April the 27th um, in 2013. I ran my first half marathon. I hadn't run a 5k mile I hadn't run anything up until that point um and I finished in three hours and 23 minutes that's amazing I was thrilled now I told David he could not be there because he was in law school and I said I'll do this but you're it's your exams and you need to stay there and the next year he wasn't in law school and I said guess what they're doing it in DC guess what you get to do with me and we did it again. I did it another one, um, except this time I ran it with him. Okay, fine. We probably walked more of it than we ran. Well, that's but, because he was a celebrity on the course. <laughs> and that was so much fun. I Four hours with him walking through D.C., a little bit of jogging. But to see him connecting with people who had survivors on their shirt, he had survivors on his. Um, I had, you know, mom of a survivor on mine and he's talking to people and he's, you know, joking it up with the coaches along the way that he's known and had trained with in his own endeavors. Um, to see life through his eyes at that moment. And, you know, he was in his twenties. Uh, we had been far enough out that, you know, the, the pains and the thoughts of all that went on for that three years under chemo and, and schools and, you know, to see life through his eyes and just the joy of meeting and talking with people along the way and the encouragement he gave to others, you know, I wouldn't trade that half marathon for anything in the world. 
I'd do it again with no training at all. <laughs> um, so yeah, my first endeavors in uh, running two half marathons back to back. Yes, and I do remember the the joke that you said when you told me that that you were getting roped into the first one that you really weren't too excited to run anywhere other than to the bottle of wine. Yes. <laughs> Cold out of the refrigerator. <laughs> but I did it. Um you did. Uh, and then you went back for more, which was amazing. I, I did. Um but I also used it as a teaching lesson and notice I'm a teacher. I was a principal at the time and I also did it as a teaching lesson for children in school that you can do things that you really thought you wouldn't be able to do. Um, you know, and I would go out running with the girls on the run and practice with them. Um, yes. and so that they could see that, you know, here I am 55, never run a day in my life. I think I can do this, you know, and I think that kind of just re- re- resonates with the start of February the 17th year 2000 is I think we can do this. I, I think that we can do anything that's put before us with a little bit of tenacity and the grace of God and the help of others. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So bring us up to date with where David is now. Oh, my boy is uh, six feet, three inches tall, happily married. Um, he's been married for four years. And he has um, almost a two-year-old son, uh, which we think is just a blessing from God, uh, Caleb. You know, he is doing the things that an an adult should do. Um, In life, nothing has held him back uh, from doing anything. He's back into, (laughs) after all of this, uh, being in the house for a year and a half. Um, he's back in into the gym and training and he says, you know, he wants to be involved again. Um, and he wants his child to be involved and to see that, you know, there are, are things that, you know, people go through and things that you can do to help others. So, yep. 32. Yep. 20, 21, 20 years, 21 years, 22 years out. Yeah. That's amazing. And LLS is such a Leukemia Lymphoma Society is such a great organization. I have trained with team and training myself. And it's another great way if people want to do an endurance event, LLS is a great organization to do that with. They collide with everything you need. They do. And it's, it's, for survivors of blood cancers, it's such a great touchstone into that community because it is that positive, uplifting. I remember running with a gentleman who he was a two-time survivor and he had talked about his last treatment cycle. He, The morning of his treatment, he would run a mile or walk a mile. He'd go a mile. And he'd go in and the nurses were just like, oh my gosh, you did what? (laughs) And he was like, I can, so I'm going to. And I think that that spirit really is just embedded into the LLS community. 
It is. Dave celebrated his birthday. 16 years old. He's, they celebrated his 16th birthday in Bethesda, Maryland, along the trail. Thunder and lightning going on and rain coming down. <laughs> People are crazy. But, you know, they they embraced him as family. And, you know, that day that we were doing that half marathon um, in 2014, that family was evident on the course. You know, yeah. people who hadn't seen him in a while were like, oh, that's Dave. They, hey, David. And, you know, we'd run and walk along with him for a while, you know, a little while before we went off and, and was with another group. So, um it is, it's very much a family, not only for those that are going through it, but for those that are looking, you know, to contribute back to and help to cure blood cancers with fundraising. So yes. it's, it's a great organization, like you said. And they contribute, um, I think it's something like 80% of the treatments that come out of LLS are then go on to treat other cancers. Mm which is really, I mean, their research arm is, is broad. Yeah, it is. And they, and he, they and he re- benefited from it. One of his, one of his protocols came out of fun- research that had been funded by LLS. So thank heavens. Yeah, that's amazing. The face of blood cancer has changed so much in the last 30 years. It, and it is in mm-hmm. large, large part to LLS. Mm-hmm. And the work they do. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and your bits of wisdom. It's such a pleasure to talk with you today. So thank you. You're welcome. I've I've learned a lot along the way. Um, probably the three things that I've learned most is that uh, doing that, going through that experience, you need to listen more. You need to accept the changes that the universe is presenting to you and not fight it. And that you need to see solutions to challenges when others say it can't be done. So, you know, my lessons of those years, you know, are very much part of of who I am and who we are as a family today and David too. So, but thank you for allowing me to share my story with you and with others. Well, thank you. And David's family is a testament to all those things that that you were just saying there as well. So his little boy is adorable. I think so too. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you again, Sharon, for sharing David's story and your family's journey. I mentioned at the start of the episode how Sharon's family impacted my journey. And during my treatment, we were neighbors. There were so many parts of my journey that I was 100% certain about. And then there were parts that I questioned a little. Radiation was a recommendation because of my age, not my diagnosis or my condition. It was a just-in case. And I remember seeing Brian, Sharon's husband, on a walk one day, and this topic came up. And he and I had never really talked about David's journey. When I said I was not on board with radiation, he very confidently said, nope, no need to do the just-in-case. That was an option we were offered after three years of chemo, and we made the same choice. It'll be okay. That conversation really stuck with me and helped to solidify my confidence in the choice I was making. 
I also knew that we were over a decade past the time they made that choice. And I knew David as the century rider, triathlete and survivor motivator. Connection and validation can be so comforting as we're navigating this world. I am on a mission to interview new guests every week to bring more connection and share more stories of cancer survivors, caregivers, and support organizations. So if that might be you or someone you know, please connect with me in my Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning. You can also connect with Sharon and other past guests there. You also have the option to connect with me directly for a coffee chat. Look for the link in the show notes or in the Facebook group. Knowing there are others with similar experiences helps us know that we're not alone because surviving really is just the beginning. That's our episode this week. Thanks for listening and have a great week.